Hi, this is Helen, and thank you for joining me for a cup of teal. Teal is shorthand for the future of work. It means bringing your whole self to work, a focus on purpose and self-management. And this podcast is a chat over a cup of tea with the people who are making this happen in health, care and public services. Stories of self-management in action. This was my very first podcast with Adele from Cornerstone back in 2017, right at the start of their journey. And by now, I'm sure you know that this is the pioneering organisation for self-management in the UK with the most ambitious plans for the whole organisation moving towards self-management. To date, they have over 50 self-managing teams, but back in 2017, that was still a dream. So enjoy this first podcast with Adele, where she talks about where the ideas and the inspiration has come from, what their early successes and challenges were. I hope you have a cup of tea ready to listen to the start of the Cornerstone journey. Hello, I'm Edel Harris. Cornerstone is a provider of care and support in local communities across Scotland. We're a charity and our overall purpose is to enable the people that we support to live a valued life, a life that they choose. We've been around for 32, 33 years as an organisation and I've been CEO for nine of those years. Thank you. And the reason that we're talking today is because we're both on the same journey, a journey towards self-management. Your journey is transforming a large organisation. My journey is starting teams from scratch. So how did you get interested in this, Idel? What happened first? Well, about two years ago, um, we sat down with our board and our leadership team And like all care provider organisations, not just in Scotland, I'd imagine the whole of the UK, um, we were having some pretty difficult conversations about the future, Um, not just the future for Cornerstone, but the future of social care um, because of all the uh, changes in the external environment and the financial pressures that all care provider organisations are under. And I think the turning point was a conversation we were having um, one year with the board about whether or not we could afford to pay our wonderful um, colleagues a living wage. Um, We've always been a living wage um, provider. And it struck me that we shouldn't be having those sorts of conversations um, and that something needed to change. So my first um, experience of the concept of um, self-management came from reading Fred Laloux's book, and it sparked enough of an interest in me and others um, that we decided to visit some of the organisations that were referenced in the book and actually go broader than that and start to have a look at businesses across the world that were very successful at what they did and look at the how they did it and start to do a bit of research to see if we could transform our business model. And that turned out to be some world tour, didn't it? So will you tell people a little bit about where you went, who you met and what you learned? Yes, we um, visited the USA first. That was because I had been asked to speak to some people who were putting together a conference in America on ageing and um, meeting the needs of older people. 
So we tied in a visit to the States with um, what was called the Leading Age Conference in Washington, D.C. So we went to meet with a lot of organizations in America who were providing elderly care. Of course, their culture and the way that they're funded is is very different to ours. Mm -hmm. We also visited non-social care and health-related organizations, famous organizations such as Southwest Airlines, who, for those of you who study business models, will know they have a very successful um, way of empowering staff to make decisions on the ground, as long as the decision is ultimately meeting the organizational purpose. So we then um, visited Timpsons, um, who will be very uh, well known to people in the UK. Again, a fascinating business model, a combination of franchising and, again, a real sort of trust and empowerment culture. And, of course, we went across to the Netherlands and we were really fortunate to spend some time with Joster Block from Birtzorg and his team, who couldn't have been more hospitable. And we also visited two other Dutch organisations, Amstoring and Zorg Accent, while we were there. And we finished off this world tour in a very exotic part of the UK called Warrington, <laughs> where we spent time with Riverside Housing Group and with the Home Instead franchise, because I'd been lucky enough to meet the founders of Home Instead when I was over in America, and they introduced me to Trevor Brocklebank, um, who was heading up the UK um, Homestead franchise network for a number of years. So all of that, we visited Highland Home Carers as well, it's employee ownership. We visited CASA, which is Care and Share Associates in the north of England. They're an employee ownership franchise. So we looked at everything from employee ownership to franchising to uh, all sorts of different ways of working. And we came up with what we're calling Local Cornerstone, which is a hybrid of franchise autonomy way of doing things and very much inspired by the Birtzorg model in the Netherlands. So would you take a few minutes to describe what that looks like? Because I know out of all the ones you've listed, and certainly for me, um, Timpsons and Birtzorg and the other examples that might be the most familiar. So which bits have you taken from what in order to create the local cornerstone model? Well, I'll start with the inspiration from Birtzorg because I know that Birtzorg generate a lot of interest um, from around the, around the world. But it is important to say that we haven't just picked up and replicated mm-hmm. the Birtzorg model exactly, partly because we are not a nurse-led organisation Um, But also there are, of course, differences when you introduce a concept to an existing organisation rather than Birtzog, of course, which started from scratch. But the uh, inspiration from Birtzog includes the concept of self-organised teams, embracing a culture of coaching and mentoring rather than management and supervision. And uh, we um, are put, of course, continuing to put the people that we support at the centre of everything. And that's really a given, and it should be a given. However, because of some of the way that our contracts are designed and the way that you know we've had pressures like others, in some cases we've moved a tiny bit away from that. So a key part of this is about providing neighbourhood care, making sure the people we support are absolutely and genuinely at the centre. One of the things we really struggled with when we came back from Holland was, will this only work if we employ nurses? nurses who are degree educated who 
have a certain professional bar, if you like. And we decided that people are people. And actually, if you give them uh, the training and the support, and you value them, that they can be trusted and empowered to do a great job. So there's a big part of Local Cornerstone, which is about upskilling our current workforce. We have no hierarchical structure any longer. We've moved from having nine layers of management to having a flat structure. We're changing some elements of our culture to reflect an emphasis on teamwork and trust and empowerment. Um, And that includes looking at all of our policies and procedures, for example, along this spirit sort of notion of keeping things simple and starting from a position where you can trust people. We're introducing fabulous technology. We were actually already on that journey, so it was quite encouraging when we went to Spiritsorg, and they rely so much on their communication tools and all the other technology that they use. So it was quite reassuring to know that we were on the right track. So everybody who works for us, and that's over 2,400 people, will have their own tablet and will have the opportunity to not just communicate with each other across the country, but our systems and processes are going to be so much more efficient that it will free up people's time to spend with the people they support. So those are the main things from the Birtsall inspiration. And from America, um, we took the notion of separating out our care provision from our charitable fundraising. So we have established the Cornerstone Foundation as part of the new model. And the Cornerstone Foundation exists to raise income to do some amazing things that will change the lives of the people we support. It helps us a lot to be able to communicate our charitable message and for people who donate to us to understand how that money is making a huge difference and not necessarily just going into a very large organisational black hole. So the foundation was launched uh, in April. And then the last part of Local Cornerstone that wasn't to do with Birtsall was the notion of franchising. So although we are not franchising, um, we see the potential actually for this model to be scaled in social franchising, but that's um, a way off just now. But we've, set, we've structured our organisation so we have 10 local branches and each local branch will have the um, autonomy to make their own business decisions in their own local communities with much less control from, from the centre. And the final point um, which we got from the employee ownership businesses we visited was that we want our colleagues to have much more genuine say in the direction of the organisation. So we are appointing to our board at the AGM in October directors. Wow, that sounds amazing. And I've also been reading Mark Price's book from John Lewis and equally I can hear echoes from what you've just described, particularly about having employees on the board in that as well. And what we both know is it's one thing to have fantastic ideas. It's quite another thing to get people to come along with you as well. So how did you go from putting those ideas together in the way that you've described to supporting other people to understand and come on this journey with you? Um, You're absolutely right. And that's probably been the the most challenging and emotionally um, draining uh, part of this whole process. But Genuinely, I think because we have a clear vision, we absolutely have a strong case for change and people are excited and and motivated by that vision. We have managed to encourage particularly our external partners to embrace what we're doing and to support us to make it a success. 
But of course, it takes a leap of faith because it's quite transformational change. And we're all used to doing things a certain way. And so all of us have to let go. We have to think differently, which is one of the most difficult things. And we have to inspire others to come on this journey with us. Um, We've had to go through organizational restructure to get the structure in place, to have the branches, to have the branch leaders, to have the coaches, which I should have mentioned, of course, from Again, the Birdsold model, we've, we've uh, employed a network of coaches. And so that's always painful. And we have lost some, some great colleagues along the way. And that's always difficult to deal with. But um, we communicated to all of our staff, people we support, to the families, to our commissioners, to our regulator at the start of the journey and asked them to come on this journey with us. And we continue, of course, to communicate, communicate, communicate. And in different parts of the country, um, we have obviously different clusters of colleagues who've signed um, the volunteer register as expressions of interest. So we've decided to start with volunteers. I don't think this is something you can impose on people to work in a self-organised way. They need to want to do it and see the benefits. So we have over 360 names on that expression of interest volunteer register and we have just started our first cohort of self-organizing teams i was with a team in moss cottage in dumbartonshire this morning cutting a cake that said thornstone pioneers all the family were there all the families the people we support and uh, everybody was uh, embracing this new way of working I also met with our Glasgow community-based self-organising team this afternoon too. So we're still in still very early days, but I believe that the momentum will be carried not by me continuing to try and articulate the vision and inspire people to change, but by my colleagues who are actually doing this. And once they start sharing their stories as they are and making this work and seeing the benefits for the people that they support, and themselves, I have no doubt that this will really take off. Wonderful. And one of the things that you mentioned was engaging with stakeholders. And I read an article this week in which Joster Block is quoted as saying that he's never written a policy. Um, and whilst I can completely believe that and, and think Joss's message about keeping it simple is really, really important, we also live within a very differently regulated system. And CQC expects us to have a significant number of policies. Um, so how have you engaged with CQC colleagues around this? Well, of course, our equivalent in Scotland is the Care Inspectorate. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to visit the Care Inspectorate, the CEO, Karen Reid, before really we put pen to paper, um, because I realised that in order to uh, inspire my board to accept this as the new strategy, and it's a very risky strategy, that one of the questions among a million others the board had would be, you know, what about the regulator? What about our commissioners? And it was pretty clear right from the start that if we didn't have their support, mm-hmm. um, the other regulator, of course, is the Scottish Social Services Council, then um, this would be a non-starter. So I was overwhelmed by the positive response. Um, the Care Inspectorate working very closely with us. They have identified some inspectors from within the care inspectorate who will be our point of contact when any of our self-organising teams are undergoing inspection. But at a very senior and strategic level, 
they're working with us on the evaluation of the model mm-hmm. so that as we come up against obstacles and, and, and issues where maybe regulation doesn't quite meet this, this new culture and this new way of working, that we can work around those challenges together. And that's really a, an important part of the learning. On the policy side, we had something like 118 policies. <laughs> 52 of them were HR policies. We've got our HR policies down to what we're calling the Magnificent Seven. Brilliant. And just today, actually, we were looking uh, at the review of all our other organisational policies and procedures and are going through the same process so that we have absolutely clear policy statements on the most important things like adult protection and so on, but that everything else just goes into a colleague handbook, a very slimmed down version uh, of all our current policies. And we genuinely trust and empower our professional colleagues to make the right decisions without having to revert to a piece of paper that tells them how to, I think we had one on how to drink water safely, for example. So we've gone from 118 um, down to about a dozen, but that's still work in progress. But if you're going to have a culture of trust and empowerment, then you really have to live by that. Hopefully, you know, by working with the care inspector and with the SC and our commissioners, we do come up against any challenges. They have shown a real willingness to try and work on them together. That's brilliant because I know that um, Timpson's just have two which is don't put your hands in the till and look the part getting them down to around 12 is very very impressive and the one that we seem to have people most challenged about our attitude towards is, is professional boundaries because for us this is all about relationships um, and I know that a lot of organizations have professional boundary policies that get in the way of people forming close still appropriate but close relationships together how are you seeing that well it's probably still you know very early days we obviously have policies currently in the traditional way of managing services which are about professional boundaries and I wouldn't say that the change to the local cornerstone model is really going to impact on that too much because it's an ongoing issue for us all if we work in care the team I was visiting this morning at Moss Cottage have wonderful relationships with the six people that they support and with their families. Most of the staff there have been working there 12, 13, 14 years. So it's very much a sort of an extension to the family type of culture. Mm-hmm. But I can trust them all as, as professionals, whether they're working in the old um, way or the new way, that they understand where those lines need to be. And again, I don't think we necessarily need to write that down on a piece of paper. I think if you have good people with the right attitudes and the right professional skills, they will understand themselves what's an appropriate um, relationship and what's not. But um, we will see as we roll this out whether or not that becomes an issue for us. Great. Thank you. And how long do you think this is going to take? What plans have you got in place? Are you planning to move very quickly or intentionally slowly? How is it going to pan out? Well, our strategic plan, which is called Local Cornerstone, is a three-year plan. And that was taking advice from Amstelring and Zorg Accent, who've been through a similar process. Although, interestingly, I think Zorg Accent, although they planned to take three years, it actually only took them 18 months once they got the ball rolling. 
But this is so complex because, of course, we're not only changing our organisation, we're also having to have very in-depth conversations with commissioners about how this way of working impacts on contracts. We want to um, exploit in the nicest sense of the word self-directed support and genuinely show that we're doing work that's valued in terms of outcomes and move away from trading in hours of care. So those are very complex and detailed conversations we need to have with commissioners about the way we are contracted to deliver care. So I think the enormity of this task, Mm -hmm. we need to go fast enough that we don't lose momentum um, and that we keep the positivity going, but we also have to work at at everyone else's pace. And one of the reasons that we've started with um, volunteers is because they will be our our champions. And I think once they start telling their stories, then others will will follow and we'll let it take as long as it does. In terms of budgeting, because there's obviously financial issues here, we've budgeted to have 30 teams in our first year, uh, 40 more in the second year, and everybody else uh, with a fair wind in year three. And if we were going to have everyone in a team today, we would have about 108 teams, just to give you an idea. Are the teams following the same sort of size as Berksorg at no more than 12 people? Yes, again, you know, we're we're at early stages, but we have asked the teams to think about size. One of our pilots was a larger team. That was because it very naturally fitted the type of service that they were working in. But some of the challenges they experienced as part of our, our pilot was that the, the team size was too large in terms of you know communication. So we are trying to stick as religiously to that as we can. However, again, part of the evaluation and the learning, um, which we're doing with the University of Strathclyde and the Scottish Government and others, will be to, to see what works and what doesn't work. So we try not to be too prescriptive. So if a team come forward and say there's 20 of us, we'd like to give it a go. We will point out some of the research and some of the pitfalls, but we don't want to be too prescriptive. But the team I met today was exactly 12, I think, people. And the community-based team in Glasgow, whom I was also with today, that's a smaller team at the moment. They're expanding I think it's absolutely right that we learn the lessons um, from Bertsorg and see what it takes to implement it here. Because I know that Bertsorg teams start with four people, but we found four to be too small to be able to manage some of the holiday or if there's ever sickness and things like that. So we're now moving to starting with six as our initial size for teams. So great to be inspired by the wonderful work in the Netherlands. And as you say, to learn the lessons about what it takes to, to make it work here. It seems to me that this is a wonderful way of operationalising option two within Scotland. And similarly, in England, we're looking at individual service funds as a way of getting that really rich outcome based service that reflects what matters to people and the support that they want and has co-production in its heart. So it sounds to me, Adele, that it's a wonderful opportunity for taking forward what the Scottish Government expects around um, health and social care, as well as the massive innovation of moving towards self-management. I was to say self-directed support uh, as a, a principle, you know, of course, we have been 100% behind um, for many years. And like all care provider organisations in, in Scotland, we've been doing 
our very best to to use that mechanism to help to live the lives that they choose. But local cornerstone, our new plan will really thrive if we encourage more and more people to take option two or to have an individual service fund or a direct payment. This model suits it very, very well. We have a self-directed support service within Cornerstone that um, supports people to understand their options and, and to make the choices that are right for them and also helps them if they want to employ their own personal assistance. So we think there's some leverage there in maybe having networks of personal assistance in local communities, particularly in rural parts of Scotland, who might not be employees of Cornerstone, but who work in this self-managed way. I think that's a really great move. We're exploring wellbeing assistance alongside wellbeing team to have the greatest diversity to be able to support people to live the lives that they want with exactly the kind of support that they want. Now, I've watched Twitter and uh, and what's been happening recently. And one of the things that we've noticed is that you're an award winner. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, I'm a little bit overwhelmed. Uh, Actually, last Thursday, um, I attended the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur, or the EY, I think they are now, the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme for Scotland, the awards dinner. And professional colleagues of mine had put me forward for an award in the transformational leadership category because uh, I feel a bit uncomfortable about individual awards. So it was lovely to be nominated and to know that others are looking at what Cornerstone's doing and and recognise is transformational. But as I've said to everyone since, um, it's absolutely a team effort and I couldn't do it with, you know, without the support of so many other people. But I was uh, absolutely astonished um, and shocked to win the Building a Better Working World category and I was pretty happy with that but to sit down and then an hour or so later to be given the overall award um, when I was in the company of some fabulous business entrepreneurs was really genuinely quite overwhelming. It was a standing ovation which was fabulous and I think it's great for Cornerstone, it's great for charities, it's great for social care, it's great for women. <laughs> so. I'm, I'm thrilled, but I can't stress enough how I just couldn't do it without the support of my board, without a great leadership team, and most importantly, without all my colleagues in communities across Scotland who are the ones doing the really, really valuable work. Well, it's wonderful to have a moment to celebrate this achievement with you, as you said, on behalf of everybody who's making this happen. So thank you. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. And I hope that we're able to have regular conversations to track your progress and help share what you're doing with the rest of the world as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Helen. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your reflections. Please tweet me. I'm at Helen at WB Teams. This podcast is a companion to Open Teams. On this podcast, we share the voices and stories of pioneering organizations in health, care, and public services. And on Open Teams, you can see the documents that they're using. Have a look at openteams.co.uk. And if you're interested in wellbeing teams, please come and find me on LinkedIn, where I share a weekly two-minute film, or my blog site, helensanderson.net. And finally, if you're interested in self-management and need some support along the way, I'd love to hear from you. I'm at helen at wellbeingteams.org. Thank you.